Amela Ana Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech Show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Product marketing in technology varies depending on the product and the audience. In some cases, it involves deep technical knowledge and understanding how developers work. Carrie Alexion Tiernan, VP of Product Marketing at Skytap, explained what product marketing consists of. We talked about effective ways of engaging with enterprise customers and developers. Carrie also talked about modernizing and migrating legacy applications to the cloud and how people at Skytap are approaching this. Carrie Alexion Tiernan, VP of Product Marketing at Skytap, is joining us today. Carrie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Today, we're going to be talking about several topics, including marketing. But first, I want to begin with a little bit about your background. I saw that you studied computer science in the early 90s. What was that like? I did. I went to uh, Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston, and my degree focus was on computer science. It was actually very interesting going to a technology school at that time because the institute ratio of male to female was about nine to one. So little did I know at that time, it would prepare me quite well for the industry that I was getting into, which, you know, at that time was very male dominated. And I think we've loosened up a little bit there, but we have a ways to go. What were some of the things you were doing back then in school, for example, what kind of computer were you working on? What sort of things were you able to do back then? Sure. Around that time, Microsoft was, you know, really starting to get some mainstream momentum and the, the PC was really starting to come on board. You'd start to see, you know, advertising on TV and things of that nature. And it was really a new paradigm. The languages that, you know, we were learning in school at that time still consisted of COBOL. We were coding in Pascal and there was, you know, VAX machines that we were still using and things of that nature. And I remember, you know, doing my senior project, we had to, you know, pick something that we were going to develop. And I picked a project that had a database back and, you know, a, a visual front end. And at the time, uh, things were supposed to be coded in Pascal. And I just couldn't do that. I'm more of a visual person. And so Visual Basic and Microsoft Access were kind of the new things that that were hitting the market. And so I coded everything up in, I think it was VB, I want to say VB6 or VB5 at the time. And so that was kind of my first introduction to the more visual side of programming as opposed to just sort of the numerical and, and mathematical side of it. Exactly. That's an interesting point, which highlights the importance of Checking what other things there are within technology versus just saying, oh, my God, I don't like Pascal. I'm not enjoying this. I'm just going to leave you know, this major. You were open to other types of technology. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, going through that in computer science, you know, most degrees are heavily focused on coding. And at the time, there wasn't really the notion of the split between more of an MIS or an information systems type degree and, you know, pure development track. And so we had a little bit of blend of both. And so on the other side of classes that I was taking, you know, it was Windows NT was just coming into market, uh, you know, Windows for Work groups were how organizations were connecting themselves if they were on the Windows platform and Novell, 
you know, we were at 311, 312 was, was kind of the back end of the networking technology along with Unix system. And so what I found, though, and is probably true in some cases today, is that what was happening in the market was actually ahead of what was happening in the classroom. And so when I went to school, part of our graduation was that we had to have at least two semesters of internship. And so we were learning more quickly in the open market as technology was changing than in some cases the classroom was keeping up. And so it, it was an interesting time of acceleration. And I, I would argue that we might be seeing some of that right now as well. Yes, I definitely think we're seeing something similar. And in terms of programming, were you only programming at a lab in school or did you have access to a computer at home or... We had labs in school, for sure. There were a number of different ones that we worked on. And then through our internships, we had computers that our, the companies had given us um, as part of our roles. And so we had access to them that way. But I don't actually think at the time I had my own personal computer. After school, you spent several years in the field doing things like managing server infrastructure, working on websites. Later, you moved to more managerial roles. What are some other reasons why you consider a managerial role? It's interesting. I think I think there's, you know, two two things to think about. Um, when you're doing IC work and you're coming up in your career, you really have the opportunity to learn a lot of things and you get hands-on. And some of the successes and failures that you have not only help you hone your skills, but they help you how you think through problems, how you can help others think through problems, and ultimately, you know, how you can become a better mentor and a leader. And so, Part of that early stage of your career is really learning how to fail, learning how to succeed, and then learning to articulate that and help others along the way. And so I'm a very hands-on learner. You know, I'm good on the book side. I, I can learn things pretty quickly, but I tend to learn faster when I'm doing things. And so in the early part of my career, I wanted to be doing. And a lot of the way that I think is more on the analytical side. And so I put puzzle pieces together, you know, I find patterns and then uh, pictures start to form. And so that early part of my career was really understanding both the infrastructure side and then, you know, managing and understanding how those systems worked. And as I grew into more leadership positions, it's allowed me to share that expertise both from technology understanding as well as from a how do you come at, come at a problem, break it down into smaller chunks, and then digest towards success. And having that big picture also allows you to see strategy from a broader perspective, as opposed to just maybe a, a single lane if, you, if you've chosen to specialize in one particular area. I see. And just to clarify a quick thing, you mentioned IC work. Does that mean individual contributor? Yes, sorry. I know you're at Microsoft, so you got that one. <laughs> yeah, but some of the listeners might be like, what's IC work? Yeah, no, I understand. I understand. Yes, yeah, so individual contributor, sorry. What were some of the responsibilities that you got in this managerial roles? Just to illustrate for people that might be thinking, oh, I think I want to be in a managerial role, but they might not have a sense of what it involves. Yeah, I think there are a couple different things because I've done management both on the IT side of the house and now I'm doing management on the product marketing side of the life cycle, so to speak. When I was managing in US West, it was US West at the time, it's now CenturyLink since the acquisitions have happened, you know, over the last couple of years. But 
but I had responsibility initially as an individual contributor for managing all of the Windows NT infrastructure and bringing in Windows NT and then Windows 2000 across the 14 states and working with a team. And, you know, as an individual contributor, my responsibility was rolling out those data centers, getting those servers up and bringing the data across on those. As I learned through that, I expanded into doing more software distribution and, you know, managing updates to both servers and desktops and things like that. And so I started to learn more about the IT ecosystem as a whole, both from, you know, deploying new things into the infrastructure as well as managing on and being on call when things fail and bringing them back up and bringing service back up. And because I learned across that sort of landscape piece, I was able to move into a more managerial position because I could take responsibility for both understanding the underpinnings, but then also set strategy for the team and the direction that they needed to go in so that we could more effectively move into proactive and you know improving service as opposed to constantly reactive and being firefighting. And so I think, you know, one of the things that I've always appreciated in managers that I've worked for is when they've walked, you know, the path to where they are, because I think they have a deeper appreciation for the work that their teams will do and also the amount of effort that it takes. And then they can also empathize with how can I make life better for both them, which in turn is going to deliver like a better experience for the customer. Exactly. And they can also have a better notion if something will be feasible or not versus somebody that hasn't spent so much time walking the path. They might be like, let's do this. And the engineers are going to be like, well, it, we can't really do that within this time frame and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's an interesting comment, right? Because as a leader, your job is always to help your team move forward, but it's also you have to press a little bit, right? And so you want to get the most out of the team and give them the confidence that they can go further than they maybe believe they can on their own. And so there's always a little bit of push, a little bit of stretch that you have to give them, but it's a delicate balance between stretch and break. Since around 2012, you've been more focused on product marketing within the tech industry. What does product marketing consist of? Product marketing is really all about looking at the landscape, both from the outside and from the inside. And so product marketing has responsibility for looking at the competitive landscape, watching the overall market and what are the trends that are coming up, anticipating those trends, helping engineering get ahead of those trends wherever possible. And it, we also have responsibility for working with both the press and analysts to ensure that they understand understand the value and the value that the product delivers to the customers. We are the one team, I would say, in any software company that interfaces with just about every group within the company. We work with financing when it comes to pricing and licensing. We work with engineering when we're talking about roadmap and future investments and competitive pressures. We work with digital marketing when we're bringing campaigns out and we're trying to land new messages or, or new capabilities and value to the customers in the open market. And then we work along with customer service to bring, you know, great stories to life when our customers succeed. And so we are really, you know, a linchpin amongst or the hub amongst many spokes throughout the organization that carries the message out to the open market. Some of the components you mentioned are watching trends and anticipating trends. What is your process for gathering information that can help you 
determining these things, for example, anticipating trends? Yeah, there are a number of things that we do. You know, we have listeners out there, a number of different companies that we compete with. Some of those, when I say listeners, you know, some of those are tools and technology that we use that's basically gathering information across the web, across the PR newswires and things like that, that will analyze if we're going into a specific area of the market or whether it's a feature or a specific competitor that we're going to compete against. There's a lot of different information we use from things on the open market to intelligence we get through conversations as well as conversations with the analyst community as well. And so there's not one individual piece that we're looking at. We look across that market. But I think one of the things that's interesting about product marketing is you can't just be a marketer. Product marketing requires that you have some technical skills. It requires that you have some technical aptitude and that you're able to have both conversations with business leaders about business value and at the same time have technical conversations with different individuals in the customer base and inside of engineering about technical capabilities. And so it's really an interesting blend of skills that kind of makes it fun because you become a little bit of an interpreter along the way. In what ways does it help having these technical conversations and having had a technical background in product marketing? What are some examples where you found this useful? When I was at Microsoft, probably it was about eight years ago, I would say now, if we think back on my resume, I had the opportunity to actually ship product. And so while my degree was in computer science and I did development in the early days, one of the things that I wanted to do when I went to Microsoft was really look at how the company ticks. And so I did a stint in program management and, you know, the system center family of products. And by doing that, I learned the language of the program manager. I learned the timing of the ship cycles, and I learned how to build credibility with the development teams. And so as I kind of moved through that part of my career, one of the things that I started to learn was I really wanted to understand why we were making the decisions we were making and what were the business models and what were the customer drivers. And so that's when I cut over to the product marketing side. But having gone through that shipping cycle on the engineering side and understanding the language, understanding the key points where we could insert feedback into the planning cycle and be able to communicate effectively with the engineers builds credibility as a product marketer. Because naturally having the title of marketing in your background, people generally think non-technical. And once you build that credibility and that trust with the engineers, it's amazing what can happen between the two teams because you start to expand the purview on both sides and you can ultimately build better product by working together. I see. And since you mentioned your time at Microsoft, when I was researching for this, I saw you were responsible for product marketing of Windows Azure to enterprise customers. What are effective ways of engaging with enterprise customers? Oh, there are a number of different mechanisms that we use. Of course, uh, one of the key things that product marketing has to do is they have to define the value proposition. And that value proposition then gets turned into typically PowerPoint presentations or what we would call pitch decks that your sellers will ultimately take out. Um, the messaging framework behind that becomes the anchor to everything that you ultimately say in the open market to ensure a consistent message. And consistency is key because if your message starts to get diluted, people get confused. 
in what you do. And so, you know, the messaging framework and the pitch deck become your anchor. And then as you're releasing new product, you'll work with your press team and your analysts contacts to further land that message within the market. But there's a number of different collateral pieces that we'll also build. We may build some thought leadership pieces. We may build some videos, both high level and technical, that we use out on our website and our properties. And then we have key messages that we'll build that our demand gen team will take out onto properties like Facebook and LinkedIn and Tech Target and a number of those other areas so that we're making our brand and our value available to properties beyond just our own website. And earlier, you also mentioned you work with financing, but also digital marketing. And right now you're mentioning some of the things that are generated when you're engaging with enterprise customers are PowerPoint. There's also a website and blog posts. Are there other components that are generated within this marketing campaign? Yeah. So depending on the type of campaign that you're building and the audience that you're going to, you may deliver different types of content. And so if you're talking more to an executive level audience in IT, a C-level type of audience, they're going to care more about strategy type content and business value type of content versus if you're talking to an IT architect, they're going to want to know a little bit more on a double click level and they might want to see technical demos They might want to see proof points from customers. They might want to see more of the nuts and bolts and the how-to. But conversely, when you're you know, talking to developers, you have to get even more technical because if you, if you really start marketing to a developer, and I suspect you may feel this way, you kind of turn off. You can sense when that marketing message is coming through. And as a developer, you really want to just you know, get your hands on and start building the blocks. And so you have to get a little bit more into the prescriptive and the technical value associated there. You're currently VP of product marketing at Skytop which is a private company based in Seattle that's focusing on cloud computing, particularly in going from legacy to modern technologies. Can you talk a bit about what SkyTap is doing? Sure. From a, a cloud perspective, we're focused primarily on moving some of the hardest applications that are out there in the market. And so there are about 20 to 30% of the ex, of the applications that have been moved to the cloud already. Oftentimes, those are simple lift and shift x86 uh, type applications that may be running on, on Windows or Linux and are, are less complex, meaning they're not as tightly coupled. And they've been built, you know, probably in the last five to 10 years. And so shifting them up to the cloud is a bit easier. When we think about SkyTap, we look at more of those monolithic applications that were built potentially. 15, 20-plus years ago. And so that takes us into the areas of power systems. It takes us into AIX. It takes us into IBMI. It takes us into some mainframe things. It even takes us into x86 and Linux applications that were built, you know, maybe before SOA and three-tier methodologies really started to hit mainstream. And so those things that are tightly coupled are much more difficult to modernize because they have intrinsic dependencies within the applications. In some cases, they're hard-coded in areas. And so they're not as easy to lift and shift into the cloud. And so we focus on moving those more traditional applications into the cloud. Are there particular domains or industries where you see more of these legacy applications that have been around 15 or 20 years and are using x86, AIX, and mainframes? 
Yeah, I do think there are. I mean, we see a lot in the financial industry. Uh, we see things in healthcare. We see things in retail. We see, you know, pieces. And when I say financial, it could be on the insurance side or it could be on the banking side. Uh, we see areas of telecommunications as part of that as well. So we talked a bit about legacy applications. Can you describe what is considered modern? A more modern application would be something that is not as tightly coupled. It's already been separated into more individual parts. It doesn't necessarily have hard dependencies. It can be broken apart more simply. And uh, in some cases, it can take advantage of cloud-native services through a more basic refactor or re-architecture than what a monolith would. What are some of the steps of the process for starting to modernize an application? For example, let's say you found one of these legacy applications. Where do you begin to modernize it? So we use an approach that we call our IPA approach. And we look at modernization really in a couple different phases. And depending on what the business is looking to do, meaning how far they want to modernize based on their specific needs, we always focus on what the business need is. Because once you understand the business need, that's going to drive the technology solution that ultimately you're going to apply to meet that need. And so when we look at IPA, we think about infrastructure modernization, we think about process modernization, and we think about architecture modernization. When customers are going into infrastructure modernization, it's usually the first step that they're taking to take advantage of cloud scale. So they're getting modern elastic infrastructure. It's not something they've had on premise before because all of those applications are typically tied to physical hardware boxes. They're not multi-tenant and there's a heavy CapEx and procurement deployment there. And so infrastructure modernization allows them to get onto more proficient elastic um, infrastructure. In process modernization, they're really starting to look at their CICD tool chaining and SDLC and starting to figure out how do we make that shift from a waterfall based approach or an idle based approach to, you know, both development and operations and start to think about more agile based approaches and starting to ship on a more consistent basis as opposed to shipping on a yearly basis or a multi-year basis. And the difference there is really that when you have the monolith, everything has to be coded and compiled and, and shipped together versus as you start to modernize and you start to decouple components, they can start to update on their own. And so we work with them to make sure that tool chain is integrated with SkyTap so they can take advantage of a number of capabilities that we have there. And then customers will come around and the, once they're comfortable with the cloud approach, they can start to really look at what does that architecture modernization look like for the long term? And, and does this application now start to go into containers? And do we start to put you know, more modern PaaS services against it? And because we've already modernized the infrastructure and we know how to ship at a faster clip now, um, it's easier for us to bring those new cloud native components in. What about the process? What does this encompass, modernizing the process? Modernizing the process is, is really about focusing on your SDLC and the tooling that you're going to use. So customers may be using old tooling and they want to move into things like using Jenkins or Ansible. If they're on the IBM platform, often it's Urban Code. If they're on Microsoft, it might be Visual Studio or the new DevOps uh, tool chain that they're using. And they need to figure out how do I integrate that into the platform that I'm going forward with? And then also, how do I start to get my teams to think about 
you know, shipping components individually as opposed to shipping the monolith as a whole. And so there's both an organizational element and a culture change element that comes into that, as well as looking at the technology change element associated with it. As somebody that's coming from the outside, looking at modernizing an application from another company, how does this, that engagement start? Do you begin with conversations of give me an overview of your current architecture or do you just get hands-on access to the workflow? Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of times when customers come to us, they have a portfolio of applications and they're a bit overwhelmed with where to start. And so oftentimes we'll coach them and starting with one application to get an initial win. Right. And then we'll work with them to bring them onto the infrastructure, start to get their SDLC and their tool chain modernized, taking advantage of a number of SkyTap capabilities. And then we'll move them through the architecture piece. Oftentimes when we see customers like want to come out of the gate with five or six applications, it's not always the best way to move them forward because by the nature of it, they're learning about cloud at the same time they're trying to modernize their applications. And these are the thicker ones. And so we also have a tool that we're getting ready to bring to market called our application analysis, our application portfolio analysis tool. And that's an online tool that customers will be able to go through. There's about 12 different questions that we ask them around the business importance of the application and some of the technical complexity, the technical skills they have, and the technical debt associated with that application. And once they've taken a high-level view on that, we put them into basically four quadrants that help them understand, should they retire this application? Should they tolerate it? Should they invest in it? Or should they be redesigning it? And that gives them a way to look at a complex problem and break it down a bit more and then start to create a strategy around their portfolio and take actions off of that. That's a good point because we've been talking about lift and shift or moving parts of an application. But like you said, sometimes it might even be necessary to start from scratch and a complete redesign. That's right. And in some cases, you know, if that is the scenario and you end up doing a rewrite, you might choose to go cloud native at that time and you might choose to change, you know, or let go some of the baggage that you may have, knowing that it could accelerate your time frame, right? Because you're going cloud native, or it could be um, that you may lose some functionality. It's really, again, anchoring back to what the business challenges that you're trying to solve so that you can bring a technology solution that's going to meet that. And I think that actually leads into an interesting point around multi-cloud. You hear that term likely a lot in the industry. There's a lot of talk. When multi-cloud initially came in, it was, how am I going to run an application across multiple clouds, right? And how am I going to replicate this application in any cloud in the event that I want to get off of Amazon and go to Azure or vice versa? And now, you know, when you hear the industry talking about multi-cloud, and we started talking about this back in the April-May timeframe, multi-cloud to us is really pull uh, choosing the right cloud for the problem that you're trying to solve. And so if you look at some of the technologies that I talked about that we're focusing on, we're kind of pioneering the effort there. There isn't any other cloud that runs some of the, the platform architectures and operating systems that we run. And so as we do that and as we go forward, there are going to be specific customers who have these workloads, want to get out of their data center, want to get to the cloud. 
And SkyTap will be that purpose-built cloud for those workloads. And then they may choose a hyperscale cloud for other things that they need to do, either cloud native or on the PaaS side. And so the industry is changing. I think it's still forming and storming a little bit as new innovation comes to market. And from what I understand, it's also becoming more open, right? Especially with this idea of the multi-cloud approach. That's right. Yeah. I think there was initial thought and, you know, push out there that everybody was going to choose one cloud and that was going to be the cloud that they did everything on. And I think there's a bit of a reset that's happening in the market. And even in the customers that we're working with every day, you know, we'll see them using two to three clouds. And oftentimes we are one of those clouds. It may be Azure in there. It may be IBM cloud in there. It may be AWS in there, right? But what they're doing is they are picking the best cloud that's going to solve the business challenge that they're trying to address. And, you know, I think it's known across the market that, you know, there are so many services that are shipping now that not every services is up to speed across every cloud. So one cloud may be better at, you know, certain skills versus the other cloud. And so you have to go and really look at what is the challenge I'm going to try to solve and then who has the best capability for me to do that. And we're seeing customers taking multiple clouds to solve those business challenges as opposed to locking into one. Carrie, thank you for coming on the show. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. And if, of course, the listeners or yourself have any other questions, I'm more than happy to help answer. 